Good morning, Redeemer family. What a beautiful day it is to be gathered here with you this morning. Um, what a tone that has been set to think about and to dwell upon the Lord's goodness, His faithfulness, and His provision, and what joy we have in that. If I were to start this off this morning by asking you if you've ever heard of or have read the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, I'd venture to guess that most of us in this room would say, yes, yes of course, most of us have. Some of us have probably read it a couple of times, others a dozen, maybe a hundred times, I don't know, but this story is often used to portray God as our provider, and He is, and there is an element of that in our text. We've been singing about that all this morning. That is accurate. One of his names literally means the Lord will provide. But if we walk away this morning, and if we walk away from this text only taking away that God is our provider, then I fear that we have missed so much. Admittedly, when I read the text, I I, I tend to do this occasionally myself, I feel like I've heard and I've read the Scripture so many times that I tend to gloss over it, right? I I tend to just kind of look over it, kind of like, oh, that's great, yeah, a crowd followed Jesus, and they were with Him, and they got hungry, and He provided for them using just a few loaves of bread and some fish. Jesus is a good provider. That's great. And whether you're like me or not in that instance, right, my prayer here today is that you'll walk away having a right and better perspective of the original intention that Matthew gives us in this passage. For all of us here, we get to discover the glory and we get to discover the wonder of God's revealed word that speaks to the miraculous works of Jesus Christ who came to give us a glimpse into His coming kingdom. That's what this text is about. Now, reflecting on last week, if you can recall, we learn that we see the kingdom in all of its glory through Christ. And when we stand up for that truth, we inevitably will invite hostility into our lives. It happened to Christ when he was in his hometown of Nazareth, and it happened to John the Baptist when he was beheaded by Herod. That story ends with the disciples of John picking up the body burying it, and then going to tell Jesus what had taken place. And that's where our passage picks up today. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 21. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Matthew chapter 14. Would you read God's word with me this morning? Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. 
you give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. For me when I was younger and when I read that for the first time I was amazed. I was shocked that such a thing could happen. It was truly incredible, but I think as time progressed, I think that my amazement wore off. Jesus performed tons of miracles, right? Healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, walking on water, casting out demons. I mean, there's nothing that Jesus can't do. And it wasn't because I didn't think that what he was doing was incredible, because I did, But rather, it was almost to be expected. It was no longer a surprise to me. I expected these sort of things out of our Lord and Savior. But in that, my amazement still wore off. But when we look at the Scripture further in depth and we take the entirety of the the situation and the context surrounding it, there's so much more depth to this miracle and so much more depth to him just being a provider than what we might realize. We can't just gloss over this. I want to break this text up into a couple of different parts for us today. First, we're going to see what this miracle actually looks like in its context. And second, we'll see what the miracle reveals to us. And finally, in the end, we'll be able to see how it all works together as a story meant to edify its readers. Let's begin. Let's understand this further and let's set the scene. To begin, we need to note that verse 13 on the surface might feel like Jesus is having an emotional response as he finds out about the death of John the Baptist. It's like he's so upset that he has to go away. But what we need to understand is that verse 13 is actually a response to the previous verses 1 and 2 earlier in the chapter, which is where we see Herod hearing about Jesus and thinking that this is actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. Then in verses 3 through 12, it seems to kind of jump back in time. That that word for in verse 3 right there, it helps us to understand that the scene of John the Baptist's death has already occurred. This would mean that in verse 13, Jesus is actually leaving to distance himself from potential hostility which Herod had already displayed with John because he now thinks that Jesus is John resurrected from the dead. Also, This remote or desolate place that Jesus left for, Luke's gospel clues us in and tells us that this was actually Bethsaida, a small town in Galilee. There were huge crowds of people following him. 
And actually, they didn't just follow him. The text says that they beat him there. Jesus got in a boat to get away, possibly to find time of prayer and communion with God after sensing hostility. And scripture says that the people followed him on foot from across the towns and they were waiting his arrival when he came ashore. Parents, does this not make you think of your own children at home? Kids are around every corner that you turn. You lay your heads down, and there they are. You're using the restroom, and they're knocking at the door. And if you experience this, then you know what I'm talking about. And sometimes we just need a moment. It's not that we don't care for the needs. It's that we just sometimes need a moment. But Jesus here instead reacts to the crowd with compassion. He reacts with compassion as he recognizes their needs and he begins healing them for the better part of the day. Another point of clarification. At the end of the story, it says that those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children, meaning that the total number of people could easily have been well over ten or 15,000 in total. Ultimately, we don't know how many, but clearly it was a lot. So when you read that little title at the beginning of this section in your Bibles, it's kind of misleading, and I should probably have changed the title of this sermon. Okay? It was way more than 5,000. So that's a little bit of background. That's a little bit of clarity for this text. But this text also stands as a sort of response to the previous text that we read last week. Jesus went to teach at this synagogue and was scoffed by those in his hometown in Nazareth. They didn't think that he could be anything greater than the carpenter's son. They had seen Jesus as he was growing up. They didn't think he could be any more than that. They were wondering, where could he have received this authority to teach as a man of God? Where did it come from? It was offensive to them as he explained the kingdom and that they should repent from sin. They became hostile towards Jesus. There's John the Baptist, who after standing up for the law of God, he gets thrown into jail. And his desire to please God instead of man ultimately invites a beheading from Herod. John feared God instead of man, and it cost him his life. But here, the people who surround Jesus, they have nothing. It's late in the day. The children are getting hungry. Everyone's getting hungry, and you can kind of sort of imagine a bit of anxious time here where the people begin to realize they're far away from anywhere that could provide them any sort of sustenance immediately. The cost of following Jesus to this desolate place for healing and for teaching had brought them to a moment of great need, and there was nothing there to supply their needs, only Christ. Only Christ was there. In all of these situations, there was a cost involved. Jesus also stands as a stark contrast to Herod in the previous text. I'm going to list some things here, and maybe you can tell me which you would prefer. Where Herod was concerned only about himself, his sensual pleasure and his pride, Jesus instead gave more of himself where Herod hosted debauchery, gluttony, and drunkenness in his royal residence, Christ fed the lowly commoner 
in the middle of a desolate field. Herod's party went from sensual desires to murder. Whereas this situation moves from teaching and healing to nourishment. Herod's motives were self-preserving and self-fulfilling, but Jesus' motives were selfless with compassion for his followers. I'd ask you this, what sort of leader would you follow? And is it worth the cost? Our text also gives many ties to the Old Testament, specifically the Exodus story. Though Matthew does not give any explicit mention in these verses about Jesus being the true and greater Moses, much of Matthew does lend itself to point the reader toward seeing Jesus as the one whom the Old Testament was foreshadowing. Just to be clear, there are resources out there that would warn us in drawing comparisons with this text. However, I at least find the language being used here to be quite interesting because the scene reminds me so much of Moses and the Israelites in the story of the Exodus. But, just to be fair, some of these warnings are fair. So, for instance, some of the warnings would be that none of the Gospels actually indicate that this is a desert or wilderness setting, like what the Israelites were subjected to after Egypt. Yes, the people are far from town, but they aren't in a dire situation. Also, in our text, the leftovers were collected and were kept, whereas the provision of manna after being led out of Egypt and into the wilderness, the manna that God gave to the Israelites was not to be kept. And another warning that we should always take into consideration is that there's no direct or explicit mention of any of these things. So we have to be careful when we're dealing with the text But the language of Matthew and the history of what we have learned in Matthew so far, along with the support of the other Gospels, it should still at least pique our interest. Because I do think that a few parallels can be drawn. The Israelites followed Moses out of hostile Egypt and across water. Here in our text, the people follow Jesus who is leaving a seemingly hostile situation with Herod through the towns as he crosses over water. The Israelites end up in the wilderness with no food and in our text, the crowds end up in a desolate place, meaning that there's a good distance away from town and they did not have any food with them. And then just as God provided manna for the Israelites instead of turning back on them, turning his back on them, Jesus does the same for the crowd in this miracle of supplying the bread and the fish instead of sending them away. John's gospel takes this all a step further in chapter 6, verse 31, when Jesus says that he is the bread of life from heaven. As a matter of fact, if we were to read more in John 6, we can also see that there's a lot more connections to the Exodus that are quite explicit. John 6, 4 adds in the detail that the Passover was near, which should point us to understanding that this miracle instance may be pointing back to that provision in the wilderness. In John 6, 14, it tells us that the people then recognized Jesus as the prophet foretold in Deuteronomy 18 like Moses, but much greater than Moses, according to Hebrews 3. 
And finally, one of the last ties that we can look at here from our text is that we have 12 full baskets at the end of the story. This very possibly could be alluding to the 12 nations of Israel, God's chosen people. Here, these leftovers in the baskets would indicate that just as God provided for Israel, Jesus would be that provision for His chosen people. These possibilities are a little too strong to ignore. That's a bit of brief context on this passage. But, again, if we're being honest, I've drawn a lot of allusions. I've, drawn, I've, I've shown a lot of potential parallels here. Some of it's educated guesses. Some of that is reading into the purposeful omission of the text. It's an attempt to use the, gospel, the other Gospels and the rest of Scripture to give credibility to my points. My hope is that you understand I'm not attempting to mislead you, of course. But it is an attempt to try to convey the whole context. But ultimately, we should be left with this question. Why does Matthew omit so much? Right? Why does Matthew omit so much? John's Gospel gives so much more detail. Talking about the specific disciples, Philip and Andrew, it gives details like the response of the crowd saying that this is the prophet who has come into the world. Whereas in our text, there's no response from the people at all. Luke's Gospel says that they had gone out to Bethsaida and that Jesus instructed the disciples to separate into groups of 50. Mark mentions... The groups also mentions the groups of people and the disciples asking if they should buy about 200 denarii's worth of bread for the crowd. So we're still left asking, why does Matthew's account here seem to omit many details out as compared to the other accounts? What is the purpose in Matthew's interpretation of this miracle? I think the reason falls in line with what he's been doing throughout his whole account. And it's to show us some specifics that he's already outlined and that he's harping on more here in the person and work of Christ. And that's what this story intends to do. So let's discuss the nature of Jesus. There are those that will attempt to change this story up. They'll try to make this miracle more understandable or at least make it seem more natural, right? Like there could have been other people in the crowd with other food that, you know, they, Matthew just doesn't mention that. Or there also could be the potential that maybe they just broke it up so small that it fed everybody. Well, that doesn't really lend to being satisfied, right? Those are terrible explanations and they don't do proper justice to the text, But I think the first point that Matthew is trying to show us is Jesus' divine nature. It's a continued theme that Matthew reminds us of. And we can see that in chapter 1 when he is called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. We see that. And, And here, God reveals the identity. He reveals the identity of Jesus by having him do the very same miracles that God performed himself in the Exodus. What he did here is unexplainable. It's inconceivable. And we aren't meant to fully understand it. This miracle of turning five loaves of bread and two fish is quite different from others. 
just think about that for a second. It kind of, it, it should hurt your head to think about how this miracle came to happen. I mean, you're like a disciple and you're like handing out the bread and you're handing out the fish, but every time you hand something out, there's not less in the basket, but there's more. How is that? How do we understand that? It, my, my mathematical brain doesn't compute. What this miracle does, though, is that in the midst of not understanding the, the, how it happened, what it does do is it helps us understand who Jesus is and his authority and to understand him as being God incarnate. Though he was truly man, he was also truly God and was able to perform incredible and miraculous works. And these works were often done as a way to help show the true power and presence of the kingdom at hand. It's here that God's glory is manifested in Jesus, revealing Him as more than just a man. There's also an overarching theme that we will continue to see play out through Matthew, especially over the next few chapters. We've seen it begin with some of the parables, but here in front of the crowds, Jesus is teaching and preparing His disciples on how to think and how to act towards others that they will be ministering to. The disciples had witnessed Jesus move away from a potentially hostile situation, only to be greeted by the inundating demands of a crowd that followed after him, to which Jesus begins to heal and serve for the rest of the day. And nearing the day's end, just when you think he should be done, right? It's, it's been a long day. You think he should be done. The disciples encourage him to turn the crowds away so that they can go and get food. But he doesn't do that. The disciples said, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Their response is kind of like an uh moment, right? Uh, yeah, we, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish. I don't, I don't think that's going to do it. You see, for the disciples, the only path forward here to resolve the issue of the hungry crowd was to send them home. It was too late to do anything else, and they didn't have any further supplies Five loaves of bread and two fish is a meager supply for thousands. Yet Jesus turns the tables on them and tells them to do the impossible. And little did they know they would actually be the distributors of the impossible to the crowds at hand. The disciples were in disbelief that anything could be done. But Jesus was there to show that with Him, all things are possible. He also shows that instead of turning those that are in need away, that we ought to act in compassion. We'll see Jesus do more things like this as he prepares his disciples for the coming days when he will no longer be with them. But speaking of compassion, this text grants us a lens that we should view Jesus through. The verb being used here to state that Jesus 
had compassion is also used in other places in the New Testament when talking about Jesus. We can look back at Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It says, For when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This verb for having compassion is really meant to reflect a, a gut reaction or a, a feeling for those whom he is confronted with. His gut reaction to the crowd isn't an eye roll. His gut reaction wasn't anger. His gut reaction wasn't complaining. It was compassion. It was love for the people that had sought after him. In his humanity, he could understand and he could feel the weight of what the crowd needed and it affected him deeply. These people needed healing and similar to chapter 9, they needed a shepherd to guide them. Brothers and sisters, if you are here and you are concerned about whether or not God cares for you or cares for your needs or cares for your desires, then I hope that this text speaks volumes to you. This Jesus is not some deity that is out of reach unlike other gods that this world tries to convince you about. He's not a deity that's never experienced hunger or thirst or pain, but rather He is a God who understands you and He understands your struggle. He understands your temptation and He understands your pain and your loss. He experienced it all too. He understands that this world is corrupted by sin. And because of his understanding, he has compassion as well in the midst of it all. This compassion of his has been present from the beginning. Shortly after Adam and Eve's sin that caused the separation between God and man, God clothed them with garments of skin. He gave Abraham the blessing of a son in the midst of old age. He guided his people in Exodus 13 by a cloud by day and fire by night. You can see his compassion in the law that is given to help govern and rule the Israelites. And those are just, just a few small examples Miles Van Pelt talks about God's compassion displayed throughout the Old Testament like this. I, I love this. He says, Mercy and compassion are rooted in the very character of God. His law commands it. Wisdom teaches it. The prophets enjoin it. And the Psalms applaud it. His compassion is so great that He gave Himself as the atonement for our sin to bring amends to the separation that our sin caused and to bring us back into fellowship with Him. He is the one to save us from our sins that Matthew speaks of in chapter 1, verse 21. He's a good and compassionate shepherd. One that would give us life and life more abundant. This text also shows that Jesus is completely satisfying for all 
who would come to him. As stated earlier, Matthew omits many details, yet in verse 20, he makes sure to point out that all who ate were satisfied. And this is perhaps an anticipation of the messianic banquet and at least evidence that there was lots to eat, right? There was lots to eat. The, the 12 basketfuls may be significant that there were 12 tribes and 12 apostles further emphasized later in Matthew 19, 28. And it's not just coincidence. It may be to express that the Messiah's supply is so lavish that even the scraps of his provision, even the scraps of his provision are enough to supply the needs to the children of the promise. It's represented there in the 12 basketfuls left over, meaning that God's people of every tribe will have their fill and they will be satisfied. We sung that song earlier about Psalm 23, but I want to read it for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Folks, do you see any connections here? It's all over. The psalm speaks volumes to our text today. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Gives this understanding of being completely satisfied. Just like the people in the crowd were completely without want or need. They were satisfied. And and Jesus makes the people sit down in the green grass, which sounds oddly familiar to the psalmist saying that the good shepherd would make them lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul, like how Jesus was restoring the people through his healing. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Helps us to understand that he provides abundantly for his flock, and it ends with goodness and mercy being with us for the rest of our days, forever dwelling and forever being hosted by the Lord himself. It just can't get any sweeter than that. It's so satisfying. And it's such a great hope that we have. As we conclude today, there's a few brief things that we can act on. And the first and probably the most important piece that I want to start with is by pleading with those that may be present today who do not know the sweet satisfaction that Jesus offers to come to Him. Come and know this Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you thirst for more? Have you sought out the pleasures of this world to satisfy you 
but still come to the inevitability that there's nothing left in it that will bring that satisfaction. This world can be dark and it can be cruel and you may often find yourself in desolate places, but what you'll find is that if you have Jesus, you have more than enough. Your supply is overflowing. He offers something so miraculous that no family member or friend, no politician or social media influencer can offer. No amount of food, no amount of technology, entertainment, or sensual pleasure can give you that satisfaction. Some of these even give false promises to meet those physical and fleeting desires that that offer pride and, and try to give you wealth or power. But Jesus instead provides a true spiritual sustenance by offering a peace that nobody else can offer. And that peace includes a seat at the table to a great banquet in a life everlasting with Him. In a moment... We'll come together to partake in the Lord's Supper. And I want to make sure I leave room for Brett to lead us in that, but it would be problematic if I didn't speak to how the text greatly emphasizes that those who do find their satisfaction in Christ can look toward a new creation and the marriage supper of the Lamb. As Christ followers, we know that death will not be the end for us. There is so much more. This sin that we fight against, our failures and our shortcomings, it doesn't end with that. It doesn't end with things like that because we have a great hope in the abundant and in the great banquet, the new Jerusalem. There's one other thing that I've not touched on that's in our text today. In verse 19, when Jesus first received the bread and the fish, He looked up to heaven and He said a blessing. This isn't a blessing. This isn't a blessing of the food, but rather it's a blessing to God. It's an offering of praise and thankfulness to the One who provides all good and all beautiful things. Traditionally, the head of the household Uh, the head of the Jewish household would be the one to give the blessing prior to eating the food. And we do a lot of that uh, probably in our homes and around our tables as well today. But, But here in our text, there's no household. There's no table. Jesus assumes that role. He takes that role of leading his sheep and showing them a heart of thankfulness to the Father. The moment The moment here isn't meant to draw attention to the miracle. It's to draw attention to the one who provided. It's to draw attention to the one who performs that miracle. The one who leads and the one who teaches them. Jesus is not simply a miracle worker or a prophet, but he acts in the way in which God acts and he blesses the Father for what he has done. And we too can learn from Jesus' example. Not in glorifying the things that we have. Not in complaining about the things that we don't have. But rather giving thanks to the one who is providing for your every need. Even in the moments when you don't notice it. 
it would do us well to recall this scripture in our moments of feeling anxiety or worry about not having something. If you remember Matthew 6, I want to read that for you. Jesus said, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We should take great comfort in that. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need and He knows when we need them in His own perfect timing. Because if we tried to get everything on our own timing, we would royally mess things up. It's in His own perfect timing. So the next time that you worry about the electricity bill, the next time you're reading the news about prices of housing continuing to increase, the cost of gas and food rising. If that gets you so overwhelmed, or how about the news of a cancer diagnosis bringing great sadness? It would do us well to still practice thankfulness and to have joy knowing that God is at work and will ultimately bring our faith to completion, which is when and where we lack nothing. Remember, folks, Jesus was before all things. He was before all things. He created all things, and in Him, all things are held together. He's the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. He's the King of everything. And as the king of everything, he has everything good and everything beautiful to give, including eternal life with him. And he gives it freely to you and I so that we may live abundantly. So let us take joy in the bread of life this morning and let us give him the praise and honor that is due. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your constant provision. We thank you for your constant provision of our physical needs that are always in your good and perfect timing. But Lord, we thank you also for providing for us spiritually, for giving us a way to be reconciled to you through the abundant gift that is your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for showing us the nature of your Son through your word this morning. In your name we pray.
Amen.